So I'm Stephen, and this is Dorothy, and this is part of our adoption story. After we had had kids, um, we had thought we were done with babies. We got rid of all our baby stuff and um, had talked about adoption more abstractly, like one day we'll probably adopt and, mm -hmm. and it'll be a, a, a toddler or an older child. And Then in January of 2015, um, we went to adoption informational night at, at the church and we left a bit scared mm -hmm. of what adoption can look like, but also excited because we just felt a stirring in us that, that this was something that God was calling us to. Like I remember um, our girls were outside after church playing and Dorothy and I were in the um, kitchen and just we were getting lunch ready, just a normal day, just like everybody. And um, Dorothy and I were talking about adoption and, and we didn't say anything to our girls. And so then our conversation ended and our girls were outside. They didn't hear anything about the conversation. And then our three-year-old, she came in and um, singing the song, I'm adopted and um, by slugs and bugs. The song is about how God has adopted us as his children. And we just felt like God was confirming what he had told me in church that day, that, that he has adopted us into his family and he is calling our family to adopt a child. Uh, about three months later, we finished the entire process of found the agency, found the, um, did all the, the process you have to do through adoption and background checks and all that stuff. So it takes a little while to, to do that, but we got it done pretty quick. And we thought that with all, all of that, that happening so quickly that a baby would come quickly too. It ended up taking longer than, than we expected, quite a bit longer. Um, Time just started to drag on and get longer, and, and we know that the process is different for everybody. Um, but for our process, we were kind of starting to question, like, what, what's going on? Our wait time ended up being about 16 months, um, which, again, in the adoption world isn't really that long, but when, you're, when your heart is waiting, it feels like forever. Then everything uh, uh, happened in October, and so... Uh, It was a, a, a year ago today um, that, uh, so we were going in to meet with our e-group and um, talk with our e-group and all of a sudden we get a call from our agency, the adoption agency, and, and the agency says, hey, there, there's a birth mom that just walked into the hospital. She um, just had a, a child today and um, yeah, do you wanna, do you wanna, um, can, are you open to this, this process? It was crazy mm -hmm. <laughs> to go from waiting to all of a sudden, there's a baby already here. We tell the agency of, of yeah, let's, let's, let's continue to pursue this. And Sunday about four o'clock, we got a call from our caseworker at our agency, and she just said, the birth mom picked you. I remember being on the phone with her and just not even having words. We got in the car and drove to Missouri and, and picked up Josiah. And then uh, the birth mom actually wanted to, to meet with us too. And so we sat down over, over lunch and met with her and, and talked with her. She had given him a, a name on his birth certificate when she had him. Some birth moms do and some don't, so it just depends. And 
I tell the birth mom, I said, you know, the middle name that you gave, that you gave the, the child, Josiah, I said, that, that middle name's a family name. So Josiah and I have the exact same middle name. Um, so, yeah, so it's Josiah Lee Wright and Stephen Lee Wright. We wanted to keep that for him as a link for him so he would have that connection between his birth family and his adopted family. And it just, to see God work even through the littlest detail of a middle name, we just knew, we knew that this, the waiting was specifically for this, this boy. And then we came back and um, it's been amazing. We were very content and, and happy with where we were, but, but what we would have missed out on uh, was, would have been huge. But the whole lesson I think through that, that journey is, is God is so faithful. Mm-hmm. And God speaks so loud um, when you listen. Oh, amen. What a a great story. Um, This is just, uh, this just reflects a huge heartbeat for um, us as a church. We have a number of of families at Christ Community who have adopted or in the process of adopting or are involved in foster care or have opened their home to family members, you know, and their children who don't know. I mean, just just amazing. These people are my heroes, and uh, they're such powerful demonstrations of the heart of God. So way to go to all of you who are involved in that whole area in some way. So welcome uh, to Christ Community. Really, really glad you're here. Um, A few weeks ago uh, on a Friday afternoon, I, along with some other folks from Christ Community, participated in a thing called Weld Project Connect, which is an amazing experience at multiple levels. For one thing, the entire community came together at Island Grove um, just to provide free resources and help for people in need. So medical help or food, legal help, I mean, you name it, which was really, really cool. But what was even more powerful for me was the impact that this experience had in my life. I I volunteered to be a navigator, which meant that I got paired with a person in need, this this homeless um, 30-year-old young man. And so we spent um, the next few hours together uh, making sure he was able to get various resources and services that he needed, a haircut, a hepatitis A shot, a hearing test, a chiropractic adjustment, all sorts of things. And so as we were doing this, I began to ask him questions like, uh, how do you stay warm at night? And where do you get food? Since there's no grocery store on that side of town where you're living, and who guards your stuff when you're not there? How how do you get food stamps when you don't have a mailing address? I mean, it was so eye-opening and heart-wrenching for me to hear his story. And every night since then, when I go to bed, I think about this young man huddling under 11 blankets, You know, before that event, homelessness was just an issue, Um, but now it feels personal. It feels real. Um, And it makes me especially grateful for our our church's investment in this need in our community. We are four people in poverty. We're part of a team of churches and leaders who are coming up with a solution for the homeless people who are going to be out in the cold weather this winter. 
um, because of your generosity towards For the City and Beyond, our church was recently able to give $12,000 to this effort. So praise God. Um, amen. Thank you, guys. And then you also heard earlier in the video announcements about this clothing drive that we are having during the month of, for the homeless, um, during the month of November. So thank you for being such a compassionate and generous congregation. I love being a part of a church that is moving towards people in need because that is God's heart. Okay, so if you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 49. We're continuing our journey through the book of Luke, and today we come to a passage that I got to admit I was sort of dreading getting to in this series. I was dreading having to teach on it. This passage is not, I guarantee, it is not on anyone's favorite Bible passages. It is not filled with positive encouragement. <clears throat> it's not the kind of passage that we turn to for comfort. You know, it's a passage that feels heavy. But I got to tell you, the more time I spent in this passage, the more excited I got about us looking at it. Because God used this passage to awaken some things in my heart that needed to be awakened. And I believe he wants to do that in our hearts today. <clears throat> the key to understanding this entire passage hinges upon the very first two verses. Luke chapter 12, verses 49 and 50, Jesus says this, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Okay, so what exactly is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about his life mission. He's talking about what he is called to do. He says that his purpose is to bring fire on the earth. So what does this mean? What does this fire refer to? Many New Testament scholars and pastors believe that this fire represents his judgment. In the Bible, fire is often is a symbol for God's judgment. The struggle that I have with that interpretation is that Jesus then says, how I wish it were already kindled. Why would Jesus earnestly wish that the fire of judgment was already kindled on the earth? That doesn't make any sense in terms of his mission and his heart and his purpose to seek and save the lost. Okay, so what does this fire imagery refer to? I believe the answer is found a little later in the writings of Luke, in the book of Acts chapter 2, when after Jesus' resurrection, this small group of followers of Jesus, they were empowered with the Spirit of God. And we are told that tongues of fire came to rest on them. And at that moment, the mission of Jesus was ignited on the earth in a dramatic way. So th th this amazingly powerful message of the gospel was unleashed at that moment, bringing restoration and transformation into people's lives. See, that's the fire, I believe, that's the fire Jesus is talking about here. That's the fire that Jesus desperately once unleashed on the earth, the transforming power of the gospel. But the getting to that is not going to be easy for Jesus, which is why he says, I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under <clears throat> until it is completed. See, Jesus is using baptism language to talk about his upcoming and very necessary death on the cross. 
which is the key to the fire of God, the fire of the gospel being unleashed in us. The cross is the centerpiece of God's plan to bring restoration and to bring transformation to our lives and to this broken world that we live in. So Jesus is longing in this passage. He is longing for that day when after his crucifixion, the transforming fire of the gospel is unleashed in people's hearts. Now, here is what is so significant for us about this passage. We are on the other side of Acts chapter 2. The fire has already been lit. What Jesus was longing for has already happened, which means that this transformative fire of the gospel is accessible to us right now. Jesus wants us to live in the fullness of this gospel fire, being transformed by it on a daily basis. And that's what got me so excited about this particular passage for us and for me. There is transformation here. Jesus is inviting us to experience a personal revival, an awakening to the power of the gospel in our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but I need that. I need that. We need that. It is so easy for us to lose our passion for Jesus, to lapse into this kind of going through the motions Christianity without the fire, without the reality of actually being transformed by Jesus. So Jesus' words in this passage show us how we can more fully experience the transforming fire of the gospel in our daily lives. Now, as we wade into this passage, we're going to discover, and we're going to look at every word in this passage, we're going to discover two specific responses that Jesus urges us to embrace, to experience more fully the transformative fire of the gospel. So first, well, it starts in, it's found in this next part in the beginning in verse 51. So let me, let me read this. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division from now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. See, Jesus is saying that when the fire of the gospel is unleashed, when it is awakened in our hearts, it will bring division. It will bring division. It may cause some distance into our relationships. Fire separates, right? Fire purifies. But often our understanding of the gospel doesn't really include this. I mean, think, think about it this way. If the gospel we embrace is just this initial sinner's prayer we pray, right, years ago or whatever, and then we live however we want. If Jesus is just a convenient part of our life that we turn to when we really get into trouble, but otherwise we pretty much do our own thing, if that's what our Christianity looks like, it won't bring division because it's basically irrelevant. It won't bring division because it's irrelevant. It's not transforming us. And because of that, it doesn't impact anyone around us. We blend right in. But that's not the gospel Jesus died for. That's not a gospel that will transform us. That's not a gospel that anyone will notice or pay attention to. The gospel Jesus died for 
is a gospel that requires, that demands our absolute allegiance. Our absolute allegiance. Jesus is saying here, I didn't come to bring peace. I didn't come to just fit into the agenda that you're already pursuing and just be one small part of your life, the life that you're living. I came to shake things up at every level of your life. I came, Jesus says, I came to be your first love to be your primary passion, to be your one obsession. I came to burn away the other idols and the loyalties that drive your life. And when that fire is lit in you, when your allegiance to me is wholehearted and absolute, it is going to result in some relational division. And that's okay. That's okay. See, if you, if you ever hear from a loved one the aren't you taking this Jesus stuff a little too seriously speech? You know you're probably on the right track. And if no one around us ever even notices any difference Jesus makes in our life, something is wrong. Something is wrong. When a fire is burning, you can't not notice it. Now, I'm not talking about in a weird, geeky, holier-than-thou way, right? I'm not talking about that, you know, distancing ourselves just because we're weird. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a way where, uh, in a way where someone around you might say, wow, they're taking Jesus seriously in this money thing, or they're taking Jesus seriously in this other thing. Their love for Jesus is influencing their decisions in a way that I can't even relate to. For instance, a 20-something girl who loves Jesus more than anything, she starts going out with a Christian guy, and initially things are going great, but he's attentive to her, and he listens well, but she notices he doesn't ever really talk about Jesus. And then she notices he doesn't really ever go to church on his own initiative, he doesn't really bring up spiritual things. And pretty soon, he starts pushing the physical boundaries that she has set, she doesn't want to lose this guy. He's really good looking. Her friends all like him. What should she do? See, this is where our love for Jesus is put to the test, isn't it? Is our love for Jesus the most important thing in our lives? Is the fire of the gospel on full throttle in us? If so, it may result in division, in breaking up with a guy. Or resigning from a job that's asking us to compromise our character. Or in having certain people that we love distance themselves from us. Jesus is saying, I'm after your absolute allegiance. And when that kind of fire is happening in your life, there are going to be relational consequences. Are you okay with that? Am I okay with that? Honestly, this is hard for me. I want people to like me. I want people to think well of me. But see, the, the question is, what do I want more? What do I want more? Who do I love more? To whom is my highest allegiance? The opinions of people around me or the Jesus who died for me? In other words, do we want a flicker of the gospel at work in us? Or do we want a flame? See, Jesus says, I could ignite a flame 
in you. I can ignite a flame in you, but it requires your absolute allegiance to me. Are you giving Jesus that allegiance? Am I giving him that allegiance? So important. So important. Well, after addressing this issue, Jesus then transitions to another essential response to experiencing the fire of the gospel. So look with me at this next section, beginning in verse 54. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret the present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? See, Jesus, he turns to the crowd. This is significant. Now he's speaking to everyone. Jesus is urging every person to open your eyes to see reality. He says, you do this all the time with the weather. You interpret a south wind as being indicative of, of hot weather coming, and you adjust your life accordingly. Why, then Jesus asks, do you not do this spiritually? You do it with the weather. Why don't you do it spiritually? Why do you not look with discernment at the world around you and realize what is happening? It's such a great question. Our world is running after all sorts of things, and it's urging us to do so as well, saying, hey, real life is found in sexual pleasures. Real life is found in having the latest technology and the coolest vacations and the hottest body or whatever, on and on and on. And on. But, but if you step back for just a moment... From all of those messages, if you step back for a moment, if you step out of the cultural pressure and you actually look at the people who are most fully pursuing these things, are they happy? Are they satisfied? Are they content? Are they in healthy relationships? Or are they empty, unsatisfied, living in bondage to some behavior? See, it's like, it's like everyone is drinking the Kool-Aid in our culture, and very few people are stopping to ask, is this really what life is about? See, Jesus urges all of us, even those of you who, who are not followers of him, and I'm so glad you're here, but he's including you here. He's including all of us here. He's urging all of us to look at our culture with discernment, to look honestly at the impact that this me first mentality is having. See, Jesus asks us, why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? Stop listening to everyone else. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? Don't just go along with everything else. Judge for yourself. Look honestly at what's happening around you and within you. Now, when we do that, we're going to discover a disturbing truth, which is described, it's disturbing, it's very important, disturbing truth, which is described in the story he tells next, next verse, verse 58. As you're going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way. Or your adversary may drag you off to the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, this, this story seems out of place until 
you realize it's an illustration describing what he was just talking about, describing our spiritual condition, describing what's wrong with the world. See, notice in this story, he says, you, 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 in this story, we are guilty. Jesus says, you are going before a judge and you are guilty. See, this is the critical truth that most of humanity doesn't want to hear. We are guilty before a holy God. Our lives have been built upon uh, about, you know, been built around just pursuing self-interest rather than worshiping and serving God. And we deserve his judgment for that. The penalty for our sin and our me first living, the penalty for that is real, which is why Jesus says here, you better do something about that punishment on the way what he says in the story. You better do something about this punishment on the way, or you're going to have to pay the full penalty in some other way, and that will not be pleasant. We need a way for our punishment to be paid, which is where the gospel comes in. Jesus paid the full penalty for our sin when he died on the cross. He died in our place. But you see, there's a particular response that activates the power of that gospel in our lives. There's a particular response that lights the fire of the gospel in us, not, not just once, but continually. And Jesus tells us exactly what that response is in the next part of this passage. Look with me at chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. See, in this passage, Jesus addresses two tragic incidents that had just happened. They were uh, not in the news. They didn't really have news back then, but everyone was very aware of these things. First one, some Galileans had been brutally murdered by Pontius Pilate. Violence between Romans and Jews happened all the time, very common back then. And then in the other incident, a tower accidentally fell on 18 people and they died. Now, Jesus uses these two current events, tragedies, right, to raise a critically important question. Were the people who were killed in these tragedies, were those people worse sinners than the people around them, the people that didn't have the tower fall on them? The people who weren't killed by Pontius Pilate. Now, that's a legitimate question that often surfaces in our hearts when bad things happen to us, right? What did I do to deserve this? You know, right, right. Is God punishing me for something? Or we look down on other people who are, who are going through some tragedy or whatever, you know, secretly wondering if maybe there was some sin in their life that caused this. I remember during the floods here five years ago, whenever that happened, that there were some Christians out on the internet, you know, saying that these floods were a divine judgment against Colorado for the marijuana legislation that had passed. So what does Jesus answer to this question of whether or not these bad things happened to these people because they were worse sinners. He answers with a categorical no, but then he has something really important. I tell you no, 
But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying those people, those people that died in that tragedy, they're not worse sinners than you. In fact, the truth is all of us deserve what they experience, or all of you. That's what Jesus is saying, because he's perfect. He's saying all of you deserved what they experience. See, all of us deserve death as a judgment for our sin. So, so what specific response does God require of us? What response ignites the fire of the gospel in us? Continual repentance. Continual repentance. Twice in this passage, Jesus says, unless you repent, you too will perish. So what does this word repent mean? Well, to repent involves seeing the depth of our need and in that place, turning to God. It is a very powerful spiritual response. Now, now in this passage, Jesus uses two different verb tenses of the word repent. One refers to a singular moment in time when for the first time we really see our need for a Savior. We realize we are sinners before a holy God. We deserve his judgment. And in that moment when we see that, we turn to Jesus. We acknowledge our sin and we turn to Jesus as Savior. We, we look at our brokenness and emptiness. We look at the world around us, the brokenness and emptiness, and we look at our own lives and we realize, man, I need a savior. I need help. I need my sins forgiven. I need Jesus to forgive my sin and give me a new life. See, that's a critically important first step in experiencing the fire of the gospel coming alive in us in experiencing personal renewal. And there are some of you here, you've never taken that step. And God is wanting you to take that first step and to experience the gospel personally alive in you. Now, I'm not done with the message. There's more to talk about, but I want to stop here. I just feel like I need to stop here and give an opportunity for anyone to do this, to take this step. We're not going to embarrass anyone. We're going to close our eyes. So just close your eyes. All of us close our eyes. And if this is stirring in your hearts, like that's what I need. I see the world around me. I see the brokenness and the hopelessness. I need Jesus transforming me and forgiving me, living in me. So if that's you, I want to invite you to pray a prayer. No one's going to ask you to stand up or fill anything out. Just this is between you and God. Just invite you to say a prayer with me in the quiet of your heart. I'll lead you through this. Just say this in the quiet of your heart. Dear God, I acknowledge that you are holy. You are perfect. And I'm not. I've done my own thing. I've gone my own way. I'm a sinner. And my sin separates me from you. But I don't want to be separated from you. I believe that you, Jesus, came to earth you, and you died on the cross very purposefully. You died in my place. 
You took the judgment that I deserved to pay. Thank you. And I choose right now to place my trust in you. I bring you all my sin. I bring you all my doubts and fears and questions and just failures, all of that. I just bring this to you and I leave it with you, Jesus. And in exchange for all that, I receive your life and your forgiveness. Come live in me through the presence of your Holy Spirit, changing me from the inside out. So God, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer, help them grow in their relationship with you. Thank you, God. Okay, so back up here, that's one aspect of repentance. Just one time, first time entering into this relationship. But that's not the only way Jesus uses the word in this passage. He also talks about repentance as a way of life. He uses a present tense, a continuous tense. Repentance as a way of life where we continually see the depth of our need and we continually look to Jesus in that need. See, Jesus urges us to live with and live in an attitude of continual repentance, which is so counterintuitive to how we often view the spiritual life and how we often measure spiritual maturity. I mean, for years in my own Christian life, I thought the spiritual maturity was about me becoming less sinful, doing certain things like prayer and worship and Bible study to become less of a sinner. But one day I had this realization that if that's the way I define spiritual maturity, that would mean that I'm leaning on Jesus less and less, that I need him less today than I did yesterday. And I realized that doesn't fit with what the Bible teaches. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 3, the, the foundational core of the Beatitudes, right? First one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. See, not blessed are those who have their act together, their spiritual act together. No, no, blessed are those who recognize how needy they are. Those are the ones who experience the kingdom. See, in other words, the fire of the gospel is ignited more fully in us when we are aware of the depth of our need. I mean, one of the most amazing examples of this in the Bible is the Apostle Paul. In in terms of the the flame of the gospel being lit in someone's life, the Apostle Paul, he's got to be near the top, right? I mean, this guy was an incredible leader, godly example, spiritually mature, planted Dozens and dozens of churches created a movement for God. I mean, huge influence for Christ, right? So what was the key? If you put spiritual you know, maturity, Paul's right up there at the top. What was the key to that level of spiritual maturity? Well, near the end of his life, in a letter to his friend Timothy, Paul, Paul says this, 1 Timothy 1.15. Here is a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. See, notice Paul didn't say, I was the worst of sinners, but now I'm so much better. Um, No, at the end of his life, Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. 
See, Paul's spiritual growth path involved him seeing in greater ways the depth of his need. So that at the end of his life, he was even more aware of his need for Jesus. He was more dependent upon Jesus at the end of his life than any time ever before. So that at the end of his life, he was, he was more aware, he was more dependent upon Jesus. See, here, here's the deal. We never graduate from gospel class, ever. We never graduate from needing the gospel. We, we never graduate from our need for Jesus, which is why this continual repentance, this continual response of repentance is so powerful and it is so important. And yet we so easily lose sight of this. I lose sight of this all the time. I start living my life increasingly independent from Jesus. Hey, I've got this. Don't worry. I've got this. I'm doing good. Yeah, 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 right. You know, I just, it, it, pretty soon I, I crash and burn in some way. And then I realized, Jesus, I was trying to do this on my own. Again, I need you. I need you. See, continual repentance is at the heart of the transformative power of the gospel in our lives. Christianity is not about trying harder to be a better person. It's not about that. It's about us continually seeing our need and looking to Jesus in that need. We continually see our inadequacy and we look to his adequacy, his sufficiency. Now, in the final part of this passage, Jesus reinforces this point he's making by telling a very simple story. Verse 6 of Luke 13. Then he, then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. Now this story is a vivid picture of how Jesus measures the reality of the gospel in someone's life. It's not measured by a, by a sinner's prayer that we prayed years ago. That's not how he measures it. It's measured by whether or not our lives are actually bearing fruit for God. Is our life being transformed, being changed by Jesus over time? If there is no evidence of fruit in our life, in terms of a greater desire for God, a greater obedience to him, a growing love or patience or kindness or whatever, if there is no evidence of any of that, it reveals that we are missing the gospel. We're missing the gospel. And the consequences of missing the gospel are not good. As the story indicates, cut the tree down. If it's not bearing fruit over time, if, in other words, if it's not received the gospel, there comes a point when, cut it down. It's very, very serious. But that's not the end of the story here. What I love about this story is the response of the gardener. Did you notice this? When the owner of the tree, the vineyard, confronts the, the, the gardener about the fig tree not having fruit, did you notice what the gardener says? Let me dig around it and fertilize it. 
See, that's Jesus' heart. His heart is for us to bear fruit, and he wants to, he wants to help make that happen. See, he is eager to fertilize and to dig up the ground and to help this transformation happen in us, but we, have, we must cooperate. We have got to cooperate. We must acknowledge our need and look to him. That's how we cooperate. In fact, I love how Jesus describes this in John chapter 15, verse 5. He uses a very similar metaphor. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If, I, if, I, if, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing. See, that's the key to transformation. That's the key to opening our hearts fully to the fire of the gospel in our lives. Abide in Jesus continually. Remain in him. Focus your wholehearted love upon him and live in complete dependence upon him, letting his life-giving power flow through you. See, when we live this way, it invites the presence and the power of Jesus into whatever situation we find ourselves in. Cancer diagnosis, troubled marriage, lost job, relational challenges, feelings of anxiety or despair, all of those are very much a part of this broken world that we live in. But Jesus invites us into a different way of experiencing these things. A different way of experiencing these things by staying connected to him, the vine. Focusing our love upon him and leaning more fully into his sufficiency. Again, folks, I, I never expected this passage in the Bible to touch my heart in such a powerful way, but it has, it has. I long for more of Jesus. I, I need him more than ever. And that's exactly the heart posture he wants to see in us. Because in that heart posture, the flicker of the gospel becomes a burning, transformative flame in me and in us. Amen. Let, let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for this passage that most of us probably skip over, you know, because it's division and repentance and all this stuff. It just seems so heavy. But God, thank you. There is life here. And I, I just sense it in my own heart. I pray that it's stirring in many of our hearts here this longing for the fire of the gospel to be fully aflame in our hearts. Would you do that in us, Lord? And we thank you for the honesty of your word showing us that it's about a couple things here. And let's just, let's just take a moment here and, and just... Um, respond in our hearts. First of all, this whole area of absolute allegiance. Is Jesus, does he have your absolute allegiance? 
And if not, is there anything you just need to confess in the quiet of your heart and say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I've been giving this more allegiance than you. So let's just take a moment and just let the Lord deal with that question in our hearts. Does he have your wholehearted, absolute allegiance? God, we want you to be our first love. And we know we, our tendency, we run after other things. We lose this absolute allegiance to you. God, thank you for reminding us. And this is where we want our hearts to be. We want our hearts to be absolutely devoted to you. No other love is greater than our love for you. So do that work in us. Fan that into flame in our hearts. And then, Lord, this this whole area of repentance, continual repentance. And, and so let me just ask, as we're before the Lord here, do you need him more today than before, days before, a year ago? Are you more aware of your need for him? Wherever you sense your need, he longs for you to abide in him, to look to him, to admit your need and look to him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If that's how you feel, you are blessed because you can look to Jesus in that place of need and experience his kingdom there. So let's do that in the quiet of our heart. Where is that place in us? where he is reminding us of our need and inviting us to look to him in a greater way. Hmm. Lord, would you make these, this flicker a flame in our hearts, all of our hearts. Just breathe, kindle that, breathe and make it a flame, the flame of the gospel on fire in us to be transformed. So we ask you to do that. Do that in us. Thank you, Lord. So we have the wonderful opportunity to respond to the word, not only in prayer, but also with songs of worship that have been specifically chosen to continue to stir what God is doing in our hearts. So why don't we stand? If at some point you want to sit down, that's fine. But let's begin standing and let's set our gaze and our hearts upon this amazing Savior.